Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's really, really haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, the podcast. Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's really, really haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, the podcast. Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's really, really Welcome back to another episode of Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast where we talk about weird, haunted, creepy, sad, and interesting stuff about Hollywood. Um, Today, we're talking about two interesting celebrities, question mark. Um, (laughs) Big question mark, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> they they were my the person I'm talking about he was definitely famous uh but he definitely had a secret that I guess wasn't that big of a secret but people didn't know at the time but he definitely was a television star and um I think a very interesting character today we'll just kind of talk about like what you need to do in Hollywood to be famous and you know that sort of thing you know like interesting people who became famous in hollywood um and outside of hollywood i guess just famous people i don't know i've had a few miller lights so (laughs) (laughs) you're good um you're good my story takes place in basically the 1950s when does your story take place Mine takes place in um, essentially the late 1800s through 1944. Okay. Um, Okay. Then I'll have you go first then. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Cool. Well, I'm very excited to talk about her actually, because I, prior to looking her up, and knowing the movie, I really didn't know much about Florence Foster Jenkins. Mm-hmm. And honestly, through doing all this research, <laughs> I wrote her name down as Flo, just for, you know, shorthand. But I kept wanting to call her Flojo, even though I know that's <laughs> not her. That's Flo- Florence Joyner Griffith, who, you know, was a fantastic runner, but uh, and had fabulous nails. But yeah, that's, this is not her. This is Florence Foster Jenkins. It's very, very interesting. Um, and I'm definitely going to watch the movie uh, now that I know all of this. But, you know, let's get into the real story of who she actually was. She was born as Narcissa Florence Foster. And she was born on July 19th, 1868. And uh, she was an American socialite, an amateur soprano. And when I say amateur, she was very, very amateur. (laughs) Uh, She was known as, quote, the world's worst opera singer. Yes. Uh, (laughs) She was known for having outrageous costumes and her horrible singing essentially (laughs) that was the two things she was known for Um, but she was from and I hope I'm pronouncing this right because I don't really remember I think I've even been there once but 
Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Um, that's where she was from. Her father was a successful attorney and he came from generational wealth. So they owned land in Pennsylvania for many years and she was the heir of that. But Florence was very adept in music actually. She was a young pianist at seven years old and she actually performed at the White House at that time. And she was known as Little Miss Foster. And that would have been under President Rutherford B. Hayes. So quite some time back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, obviously we weren't alive. Uh, it just sounds very, like a very long time ago. It was, uh, but she wanted to study music in Europe after graduating high school but her father refused to let her go or give her any kind of money. So she was kind of left to maybe follow another path. Uh, in 1885, at the age of 17, Florence decided to marry Frank Thornton Jenkins, who was a doctor that was 16 years older than her. In 1886, the following year, Florence unfortunately contracts syphilis from her husband and reportedly decides to cut all ties with him after that. She claimed she was granted a divorce, but there was no evidence of this ever found. And she decided to keep her last name of Jenkins for the rest of her life. She had an arm injury that actually killed her piano career. So in 1900, in the year 1900, she moved with her mom to New York City. And then by 1909, which was her early 40s, Florence meets St. Clair Bayfield, who was a 33-year-old British actor. And those two became live-in lovers with a question mark because it isn't really clear if they mm -hmm. live together, but they were definitely together. And he's referred to as her husband in most accounts that, that I've read. But later in 1909, her father dies and Florence becomes the beneficiary of a large trust so she's really excited about that because she wants to use it to resume a musical career where she is the singer and Bayfield is her manager. So she took voice lessons and she immersed herself in the wealthy New York City society and she joined a ton of social clubs. She was known in most of the clubs as chairman of music so that meant that she was going to be in charge of just about everything that was musical or had to do with music in the groups. So what she did before getting into her musical act was she produced these, it was called Tableau Vivants. And essentially it was just like a little, it was kind of like a little sketch almost, a little scene and 
these were popular diversions for the rich people of that time, essentially. So Florence always, since he, she was in charge, she cast herself as the main character. And in the final tableau, she was always wearing a very elaborate costume that she designed herself. There is a famous photo of her wearing a costume with angel wings. And that was from her tableau inspired by Howard Chandler Christie's painting that was called Stephen Foster and the Angel of Inspiration. Mm. So that's where she really became known for um, having these very, very elaborate costumes that she designed herself. And um, she kind of became known just for that before even opening her mouth and singing. So she already kind of established herself that way, which honestly is very smart, you know, um, and then in 1912, Florence uh, gives private voice recitals at the age of 44. In 1917, she becomes the founder and president, soprano hostess of her own society, uh, which was called the Verdi Club. And they actually had over 400 members. By 1930, Florence's mother dies and more financial resources become available for her singing career. So this was going to be kind of where she really took off and she did take off later in life, much later in her life. But, you know, she had, <laughs> she was having a very successful career. So it just goes to show it doesn't matter what age you are, you're, <laughs> you can have a career at any age. Um, yeah especially if you have the money to exactly <laughs> if you have the money to do it that is yeah. key yes she did she had a, a ton of resources at her disposal but was she good mm, that's the question yeah so in her vocal career she was good at playing piano because she had played piano at the white house as i mentioned when she was just a child which is just astounding mm -hmm. um but she was bad at singing by all accounts. Uh, no, no, no accounts I've read. So the debate is kind of whether did she know she was bad or, you know, was she really bad? That's the main debate. Yeah. But no one has argued that she was bad at singing. Yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of. Have you ever met someone who didn't realize that they were bad at? singing or bad at something um yeah I mean I can't <laughs> I don't know recall specifically right off the bat but yeah <laughs> so I grew up with I'm not gonna name her name but bless her heart I grew up with someone who did a lot of musical theater and was very talented oh, yeah. in acting and dancing but when it came to singing was no yeah <laughs> yeah that was yeah. like like beyond not good mm. and it was just it was so baffling to me because like i'm not a good singer but i can like get by you know right right, right. <laughs> you know, by hearing basically a tone and kind of staying in a beat and like yeah. you know and they were able to stay in a beat but the voice was so 
like so like with this and they did not understand that they were bad right no idea and I think it was because their mother was very much like a yes person you Mm. know there's a lot of people commenting on how talented this person was Mm -hmm. because they were talented but in other aspects you know yeah of their life like very good actor very good dancer very good with like everything else fashion right (laughs) posing themselves but just when it came to singing it was just so terrible but when you do theater you need to be able to if you're dancing and acting you gotta sing too you know most of the time so it's like very unfortunate and like I just it just broke my heart because no one ever told this person that they were bad at it oh yeah they just wouldn't ever get cast as a lead they always got cast as like the lead dance role you Mm -hmm. know they didn't understand why they were never the lead in the musical you know yeah (laughs) I remember at one point this person's boyfriend was like in a band and was like they were like oh I'm gonna sing in the band and I was like yeah honey no (laughs) I might have said that but that's not what's gonna happen and it was just like so sad because like yeah like the boyfriend has got to be in the position of like no that's not gonna happen like because my band members aren't gonna allow that you know Mm -hmm. just I don't know you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. It's like so I wouldn't say sad. It was just like unfortunate because it's like because this person was so talented in so many other aspects. It was just like this is this just isn't your thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um Yeah. Oh, I know. Like I don't know. Like, yeah. I, it's just uncomfortable right I don't know <laughs> you don't want to say and no and to me it was very confusing because like yeah I'm not I'm not a good singer but I can like yeah at least hear when I'm not good I can hear myself be not good right and you can you you can hear when others are not good as yeah. well and most people yeah. can yeah that's not something that's like exclusive to anybody you can yeah I I sing and I'm not um you know I'm, I'm trained, but I also, I listen more than I do um, look at notes, you know? Mm-hmm. I can read notes, but like, mm-hmm. you know, for instance, uh, when was it? I don't know. Years back, I guess when I moved here, I was auditioning actually to be a part of, um, what's it called? Angel City Chorale or something like that. Like, you know, like a Los Angeles choir, basically. Mm-hmm. And it just sounded awesome. And um the audition went really well, except for the part when she told me, she's like, oh, but you really need to be like on point with your reading notes and stuff. And like, even though I had been in, in choirs and chorus and I learned all that stuff, I kind of forgot about it. And I just learned to rely more on my ear, you know? Mm -hmm. So that is fine for singing. But like when you're singing in a chorus, it's really important that you can read the notes properly, you know, because you have to blend in with everybody. So uh, that wasn't working 
but mm -hmm. she was very nice and she was like complimentary and everything but she's like yeah I just need to brush up on your notes but she did she gave me very nice compliments that's all I'll say <laughs> she she was nice about my singing and she said I could sing professionally which was all I really wanted to hear but <laughs> you um, know so um so Florence you know her her good piano playing didn't translate unfortunately to her singing um she was good at playing the piano but bad at singing so she didn't have the basic vocal skills that most singer, singers have, Ugh. sorry. <laughs> um, she didn't really have any pitch, rhythm, sustaining notes and phrases. That was all kind of lost to her. That just wasn't there, not in place. Um, she had an accompanist uh, and his name was Cosme McMoon. What a name. <laughs> it is McMoon, um, but that was her accompanist and he actually had to make adjustments constantly to try to hide her musical mistakes but unfortunately he couldn't hide her terrible tone or the fact that she just couldn't sing very well yeah and she was flat most of the time um and she also had bad diction but it's really astounding at the same time that Florence chose these really difficult operatic arias, such as Queen of the Night from Mozart's The Magic Flute. And in my notes, I just wrote down, she sucked with a, a sad <laughs> face. But I mean, honestly, I don't wanna say she sucked, but it sounds terrible. And all you have to do if you want to hear, if anyone out there wants to hear Florence sing uh, that little snippet from the magic flute, just go to Wikipedia and type in her name and it, you know, scroll down, it will lead you to where you can hear her, you know, it's only, it's not even a minute long, it's just a very small so if you want to hear just how dreadful she is, because I kept reading about all of this and I was like, well, did she really sound that bad? Yeah, she kind of did. I mean, <laughs> when you sing opera, you're not supposed to sound like that. It definitely sounds comedic, not like someone's actually singing opera. And I'm not opera trained at all, but yeah, no, she's not supposed to sound like that. Anybody could figure that out. <laughs> um, but here is a direct quote from opera produ producer Ira Sif who dubbed Florence the anti-Callis. So if anyone out there knows opera, you know that Maria Callas was probably the top um, opera person of, of you know, the last century, at least. Um, she was known as being the queen of opera. So if Florence Foster Jenkins is dubbed the anti-Callis, that's a pretty big dig at that time. He said, Jenkins was exquisitely bad, so bad that it added up to quite a good evening of theater. She would stray from the original music and do insightful and, and instinctual things with her voice, but in a terribly distorted way. There was no end to the horribleness. <laughs> they say, Cole Porter, himself 
had to bang his cane into his foot in order not to laugh out loud when she sang. She was that bad. But even though Cole Porter might have been doing that, um, he was still a huge fan of Florence's and he rarely missed a recital. So what does that tell you? I don't know. <laughs> big, big question mark because yeah, Cole Porter, um, obviously huge during that time, but uh, yeah, he had a great love for Florence and if she quote unquote sucked, I don't know. What was the appeal? Not sure. <laughs> So I feel, I feel like it is like when you go to Rocky Horror, you're not going to Rocky Horror because it's a good movie. It's yeah. Not a good movie. You're going for like this like experience, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, like I went there and I did this. <laughs> I could see him like going just to like be outside of like yeah. the norm. You know? That's true. That's true. And like, like I said, which I'll get into a bit in a moment, but she she created her own elaborate costumes. I mean, she made this into, this was a full on performance. This was not just some little like cabaret act. Like she really got into it. Like she was the opera diva. That's, that's what it sounds like from everything I read. Mm-hmm. But the big question was, is, is she, was she in on the joke? Was Lady Florence, that's what she liked to call herself, and immediately, of course, I thought of Lady Gaga. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, Lady Florence, no, that's what she liked to call herself. She signed her autographs that way, and that's what she liked to be known as. Um, but was she in on the joke? Did she really believe that she had legitimate vocal talent? Um, so like I said, that was a matter of great debate. A couple different opinions you know, from, from people, uh, there was a woman named Marilyn Horn, who was a mezzo soprano, which actually is, um, probably what I would sing. Um, that's kind of where my voice is right now. So it's like just above the highest you could sing soprano is the highest, but mezzo is like a step below. Um, but she believed that maybe Florence didn't know she sang badly. She was interviewed by um, National Public Radio and she said, quote, we can't hear ourselves as others hear us. So she was saying maybe that was a reason. And and another reason might've been that Florence's hearing was compromised due to the nerve damage from the syphilis that she had contracted. And the treatment of it, which at that time, um, <laughs> this this harkens back to another one of our podcasts that we did, you know, I think a year ago when I was talking about different makeup styles that women had at the time. But to treat syphilis at that time, they used mercury and arsenic. So that was going to cause her to have hearing loss and also hair loss. So when she wore the wigs in her elaborate costumes and stuff, that was an actual necessity because she had to, (laughs) because she had the, you know, all of this happening from the syphilis that was kind of basically untreated. 
you know, because using mercury and arsenic, that's not going to cure the syphilis. So, um, <clears throat> Florence held private performances that were not open to the general public. And that was on purpose <laughs> because she was very aware of her haters. She didn't give tickets to music critics because of course she didn't want any bad reviews. Mm. Um, and then Bill Schumann, who was an acclaimed voice teacher, who was also interviewed by NPR, he does think that Florence knew what she was doing simply because his, his voice teacher, who was a woman named Louise Frances Bickford, she studied under Florence and she became Bill's teacher. Hmm. So Bickford said that Florence was in on the joke. She loved the audience reaction and she loved singing, but she knew. So he really thinks that because Florence, um, when you know she was in her later years, um, when she was in her 40s, because she was a vocal teacher and she took so much time to and care to, you know, nurture and instruct younger singers that she couldn't have possibly known herself that she was a bad singer. But uh, who knows? <laughs> but getting back to the costumes, um, Florence performed Clavelitos which is in Spanish, Little Carnations. And that was from Valverde's Spanish Waltz. And she dressed up as Carmen with castanets and a wicker basket of flowers. And during her performance, she flung flowers into the audience. And then because that was her most popular song, Clavelitos, she had the accompanist, McMoon, she had him go into the crowd after the first time she performed it, he went into the crowd and she would have him pick up all the flowers, put them back in the basket, and then do the encore again and throw all the flowers into the audience again. And I can only just imagine the poor accompanist like going into the audience, picking up all the flowers because it's said that she really got into it and she's acting the part, she's playing the castanets, flinging the flowers into the audience, and then they said she actually flung the basket into the audience as well. So he had to go and pick all of it up again, just so that she could do the encore performance of her most popular song, which was probably completely horrible. So <laughs> apart from the uh, maybe physical spectacle that she put on stage. Um, <laughs> so Florence had been extremely private about her performing and she controlled everything. She controlled the tickets, who got to see her up until October 25th, 1944. That's when Florence finally opens herself up to the general public and she books a performance at Carnegie Hall in New York City. Wow. The tickets sold out weeks in advance there were 2,000 people turned away at the door. Jeez. And the venue was a, a 2,800 seat venue. So, I mean, that's just insane. Yeah. Um, 
Cole Porter was there and other celebrities were there. But like I said, she, Florence couldn't control the tickets this time. She couldn't control the distribution. So what did that mean? That meant that all her haters had a field day. All of the people who mocked her, the naysayers, the critics, they were all able to come in if they wanted to and got in and paid for a ticket. Mm. But especially the critics from the newspapers because the next morning's newspapers were filled with scathing and sarcastic reviews. And Florence was devastated, reportedly. Um, that's what her uh, live-in man, should I say, uh, Mr. Bayfield, that's what he said. He was quoted as saying that they devastated her. The New York Post said, quote, Lady Florence indulged last night in one of the weirdest mass jokes New York has ever seen. So basically calling her whole performance a joke. And just five days after the concert, Florence has a heart attack. Mm. He was shopping in um, G. Shermer's music store. And when I saw that, G. Shermer, I was like, oh my God, that's actually where I shop for music in Chicago when like I was taking voice lessons. So that just struck a chord with me because I was like, oh my God, I've actually, I know what that place is. I don't even think it's there anymore, but I mean, it's an older, you know, store. Not that I'm as old as Florence Foster Jenkins, thank you, but <laughs> it was still there in, uh, you know, the 90s, let's say. Um, but after Florence had the heart attack in the music store, she dies one month later on November 26, 1944, at the Hotel Seymour, where she was living in Manhattan, New York. And she was buried in the Foster family mausoleum in Hollenbach Cemetery in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Now, Florence has quite the legacy in pop culture. She has so many stage plays, like a lot more than I thought devoted to her solely or to the story. There's um, some documentaries out there and then as far as films go, some films as well, but most notably 2016's Florence Foster Jenkins starring Meryl Streep and Hugh Grant. And Hugh Grant plays St. Clair Bayfield, her maybe lover, I'm not sure. Maybe it will be clarified more if I watch the movie. <laughs> but um, Meryl Streep received an Academy Award nomination for her role. And um, so, yeah, definitely check that out if you're interested in learning more about Florence Foster Jenkins. And kind of as a last little footnote, um, there was something I read in the NPR article about Bill Schumann, the music teacher that was saying that he thought that Florence knew that she was terrible and she was in on the joke. But he was saying something like, um, 
you know, Florence kind of is that, is that person that wanted to be a star so badly. It kind of, it's kind of like, you know, the people who are auditioning on American Idol, like that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was so interesting. I started thinking about, I was like, yeah, kind of is like that. Like she kind of like, but she got to do her own American Idol where she controlled absolutely everything, <laughs> you know, from the ticket distribution. She, re she even did some recordings and the recording she did was in her 70s. So like right before she died, like kind of insane, you know, mm -hmm. to think about. But but yeah, she she had that hope that she was maybe a great entertainer and performer and you know, to a lot of people, I guess she was. And that music yeah. teacher wouldn't have been here if, you know, she hadn't taught his teacher. So she has to have some kind of credibility somewhere. But it's really interesting. I know the movie, um, even though I didn't watch it yet, but it said that they, the, the take that they had in the movie was that um, all of her the people that supported her, you know, were sympathetic, but that, you know, in the movie that she, she was oblivious to the fact that she was a horrible singer. So that's the take they have in the movie. So it'll be interesting to see that, but um, in real life, who can say, but honestly, go to Wikipedia, listen to the, <laughs> the little snippet it doesn't sound great. So <laughs> I'm so all curious. I say. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like I listened to her a little bit when I first saw it, when I did see it, because I have seen the movie. Okay. And I feel like I saw, I listened to a little bit of her, but yeah. <laughs> I get the desire. I've always wanted to be like a lead in a musical or something like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, what can be honestly, who can knock her if she's creating her own costume? She's doing all yeah. her own thing. I mean, if she's really terrible, I mean, okay, yeah. I mean, that matters too, I guess, but only if you really care about it. I don't know. Maybe she didn't care. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. It's very interesting to think about, you know? I don't know. I don't know if she cared or not, but. She definitely had, like, if she knew piano notes, I kind of find it hard to believe that she, like, didn't know musical notes. But then again, uh, I don't know, because I don't know if that's, like, a disconnect or something like that. Because I can kind of play piano, like I, I learned, but having been around a person that was completely oblivious, just, yeah, I can, I can believe that they would not know you know yeah so bizarre you know but yeah. Yeah. it must happen though right <laughs> no, no. but I think like you know in the end she did her own thing that's what matters right I mean oh yeah yeah you know she was very unique and she's like, I just don't care. <laughs> I'm just going to do this, whatever. Oh, like, yeah. even, even though like some critics were saying like, I can't believe she's attempting that operatic piece and 
she doesn't have the skills for that, but she just did it anyway. <laughs> you got to give her credit for that on some level. So oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Um, anyway, thought that was very interesting. So yeah. <laughs> so we'll take a break right now and okay. hear from one of our sponsors. Do you like to read? But are you a bit of a snob and you pretend that you only read highbrow literature but secretly you devour books like Twilight and Fifty Shades? <laughs> well, do I have the podcast for you? Breaking Down Bad Books is a podcast analyzing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. I have previously broken down Twilight, New Moon, Divergent, Fifty Shades of Grey, Fifty Shades Darker, 365 Days, just piles and piles of crap. And this season I'm back in forks and I'm critically analyzing Stephanie Meyer's Eclipse. As far as I can remember from when I read it as a teenager, there's werewolves, there's vampires, and they're all obsessed with this basic white girl who was just the most boring little bitch but they're all in love with her. And then over on Patreon, I'm looking at the Divergent sequel, Insurgent. Haven't read that one before. Don't know where it's gonna go, but I assume I'm gonna hate it just like I hated Divergent, but I loved talking about it. Head to breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links and contact information. You can also go to patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks for access to all the exclusive bonus episodes. Happy reading. Right. And we're back. Yay. So I think the theme, because sometimes I make these podcast schedules months in advance and I forget the reason I put <laughs> two stories together. But I think the theme today is the lengths that someone would go to for fame, for recognition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I think that resonates with your story. Mm-hmm. But definitely resonates with the story that I'm about to get into. Oh, okay. So I'm going to set the scene for you. So it's the 1950s and you're a housewife and your husband is at work. Your kids aren't due home for a few hours and your, all your housework is done. So you sit down on your uh, 1950s appropriate conservative couch (laughs) and uh, you turn on your black and white TV and you tune into the Exotica hour Mm -hmm. uh, for an escape to a distant land. And on screen appears a beautiful man wearing a jeweled turban and he graces his fingers across the keys of an organ beautiful music comes out and his bedroom eyes captivate you for one moment you are transported far far away uh the indian exotic dreamboat is corla pandit but he is not exactly what he seems Hmm. so that's (laughs) who i'm going to talk about today is corla pandit he was a television star and musician and with a very uh interesting backstory he's definitely mysterious and uh for reasons that will be obvious um when we find out a little bit more about his backstory Mm -hmm. so 
1921, John Roland Red was born in St. Louis, Missouri. His father, Ernest Red, was an American. Oh, I should start off by saying uh, I got most of my information from Wikipedia, um, corlapandit.com, and a wonderful YouTube channel called The Age of Vintage. And uh, please listen to this YouTube show. The guy's voice is the age of vintage society. That's like, he's so great. I can't, he's got this great, slightly British. I don't know if it's British or what it is, but he is brilliant. And Corla Pandit, the age of British society. I'm so butchering it, but anyways. (laughs) Uh, So this is how I learned about Corla Pandit. So in 1921, John Roland Red was born in St. Louis, Missouri. His father, Ernest Red, was an African-American Baptist pastor. Red's mother, Doesha Onina Johnson, uh, had Anglo and African ancestry. Both parents were descendants of African-American enslaved persons. Red was one of seven children to be born, and he had light skin and straight hair. Mm. So uh, in 1922, Red's family moved to Hannibal, Missouri, where they lived for nine years. In 1931, they moved to Columbia, uh, where Red's father was a pastor Uh, of the second largest Baptist church in town. Given the Jim Crow restrictions in the state, Red and his siblings attended racially segregated public schools for African-American children. Red's family later recalled that John Red was a musical prodigy from age three. He could hear a song once and have it memorized and the family members taught him to play piano from an early age. Uh, A contemporary of Red's jazz pianist, Charles Thompson, knew Red from Columbia, where they attended high school together. Later in life, Thompson remembered that as a teenager, Red was the better piano player of the two. Uh, The whole Red family was musically talented. Red's two sisters sang, and played piano, his older brother, Ernest Red Jr., known as Speck for his freckles, <laughs> also became a jazz pianist and later a band leader in Des Moines, Iowa. John and Ernest Red played in groups with their older brother, Harry, who was also a musician. In 1937, Red was living with relatives in Omaha, Nebraska, and in 1938, in Atumwa, Iowa, working for the Central Broadcasting Company in Des Moines. Um, He would later come to Los Angeles and stayed with his sister and her husband and was the second of, sorry, he was the second of his family to relocate to California. And at some point, he began going by the name of Juan Rolando, probably because being black in 
America was not as socially accepted as being Mexican, Mm -hmm. especially in the music industry or television. So he starts going by Juan Rolando. This is the first incarnation of him portraying something that maybe is not quite him. Um, if you see pictures of him, he is very ambiguous in race. Uh, he is gorgeous. He is stunningly gorgeous. He has beautiful, very feminine features and, you know, is obviously just captivating with his look, but is definitely racially ambiguous. So at this point, he starts going by Juan Rolando and Uh, In 1943, Juan Rolando was working as a staff organist for a local Los Angeles radio station, KMPC, and uh, I just assume that's their their (laughs) jingle. Uh, And apparently the same year was a staff organist and music clearance agent for NBC in Hollywood, earning 100 per week. The same year, he was among the first personalities to make a 16-inch radio transcription disc for Capitol Records, uh, radio trans, uh, Capitol Records Radio Transcription Division, a disc entitled Right as Rain, which co- was commercially released under the name Juan Rolando in 1943. So he does very well for himself. You know, and he's getting jobs that maybe he wouldn't have gotten as a black person, you know, not to say that he wouldn't, he's very talented, but obviously he's able to run in other circles being more, um, just being portraying maybe this character that maybe gives him more confidence than he would typically or makes him interesting you know or for whatever reason he's still portraying mexican even though he's a light-skinned black person yeah uh so on july 21st 1944 john roland red slash juan rolando marries disney artist beryl june de Beeson in tijuana hmm. um he uh, marries her there. Um, it was his sister, I believe, that introduced the two of them. So he he marries a artist for Disney, which I think is really interesting, um, especially knowing Disney's um, kind of take on things that are exotic and different at the time. Oh, yeah, um, sure. right. You know, uh, they definitely had an interest in that, but maybe didn't always portray it as accurate. You know, which definitely resonates with what Juan Rolando is doing at this point of having like this interest in being exotic, but maybe he's not exactly accurate in his take on it, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, definitely themes of cultural appropriation, but maybe not exactly that in the context that we think of it today, you know. Uh, you know, there's like a slight difference between cultural appropriation and passing to survive, you know, which I think is more of what's going on here. 
Um, so he marries her in Tijuana because marriage between blacks and whites are illegal in the U.S. Um, uh, Beryl was 24 years of age and Corla was 22. So she's actually two years older than him. Uh, Corla or Juan Rolando continues appearing uh, around Southern California, playing supper clubs and lounges and gradually making a name for himself. So uh, in 1946, Juan Rolando was heard on the Jubilee radio, which was created and performed by Armed Forces Radio for Black servicemen. Um, he was a one-man combo playing both piano and Hammond organ at the same time. And in the fall of 1948, Juan Rolando appeared at the opening uh, of the Pomona Recreation Department Department's Valley-Wide Art Exhibition in the Pomona Public Library. So he starts getting, you know, decent shows around Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. However, in the mid to late 40s, the Zoot Suit riots start and there is a huge conflict between the Hispanic community and the white community. Wow, yeah, Um, for sure. And around this time, uh, around this time, uh, John Red decides that he's not going to be Juan Rolando anymore and that he is now going to go by a different name. So between June 28th, 1948 and January 28th, 1949, he starts going as Corla Pandit uh, and was, ends up debuting on air in a popular radio show entitled Shandu the Magician, which uh, had originally made its debut in 1932. The show aired uh, five days per week and we're always live so he's doing music on this magician's show but under the name of Corla Pandit so he creates this whole persona of Corla Pandit where he is Indian uh, he claims that he's Hindu but he wears a turban but as you know Hindu wow. people or Indian people would probably know that Hindus don't wear turbans. It's usually a Sikh and they don't ever really wear a jewel or any sort of adornments on their turban. So this is very much an idea of a place, but not exactly accurate, you know, but I don't think he's doing this as a way of making fun at all. I think it's in a way of kind of honoring I wouldn't maybe not even say honoring but like creating a character that is within a world of fantasy you know and he's he's also a black person that needs to pass to be successful he he has to create this persona in order to be in certain circles Mm. you know to get by Mm -hmm. yeah um so in 1948, uh, appearance playing for a Furrier's fashion show at Tom Bredeman's restaurant in Hollywood, Corla and Beryl, uh, his wife, um, 
met television pioneer Klaus Landsberg. Klaus loved Corla's look and offered him his own 15-minute daily television show on the local Los Angeles station, KTLA. Mm. Mm. Uh, with the stipulation that Corla would also provide musical accompaniment for another television show entitled Time for Beanie. That seems like my show. Why is my show not called Time for Beanie? Uh, Landsberg also insisted that Corla not speak on the show, but rather just gaze mysteriously into the camera as he played a Hammond organ and grand piano simultaneously. And this kind of becomes his signature look or appearance of, of him just being mysterious, you know, and he just like mysteriously gazes as he plays the piano. It's, it's definitely incredible. I don't know. I watched it and there's like just this, just this like hypnotic tone. I mean, there's just something so magical about it that I just, I loved Oh. Um, so Corla followed, followed Klaus's contractual obligations and became an overnight star and one of early television's pioneering musical artists. He is also the first Black person or first African-American person to, or a uh, musician to have their own TV show. However, he's pretending to be Indian, which is so unfortunate that he felt like he had to pretend to be something else to be famous. But I mean, I think the mystery, the persona, the mystery is just adding to this whole effect, you know? And I think one maybe benefits the other. It's just, it's so hard to say, but oh, yeah. definitely an interesting character. Oh. Okay. Um. Bear, in 1948, Beryl and Corla have their first son, Sherry Pandit. Um, and six months later, in February of 1949, Time for Beanie and Corla Pandit's Adventures in Music both debut on television station KTLA in Hollywood, California. And television history is made. Both show, shows performed live five days per week, Monday through Friday. So he's, he's working, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the early 1950s, Corla recording as a band member of the Sons of the Pioneers for RCA Victor Radio Stations of America. He was the, the original lead singer of the band was none other than Roy Rogers. Oh my goodness. That band. And he also recorded his first commercial albums manufactured and distributed by Vita Records which primarily also distributed um, people of color. The headquarters are in Pasadena, California. So in 1950, ooh, I just hit the table. Sorry, let me take that again. In 1954, he established his own record label, India Records, even though he's not Indian, um, but he establishes his own record label, which is awesome. You know, this is a... <laughs> This is a person of color, you know, even if, even if he was Indian, this is still a person of color, you know, creating their own record label in the 1950s. And I think that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, yes. <laughs> yes, he's bringing, so really the reason why like this exotic idea is so well received is because I feel like 1950s white America was so restrictive and so conservative that people just really wanted an escape to an exotic land and uh you know white people have always had a fascination like with anything different you know and (laughs) like you know, in the 1900s, we were colonizing India, you know, but like in the 1950s, this is when like Chinese, American Chinese food restaurants are becoming very popular at the time. Yeah. And it was really the Chinese community are starting to really hone in on that idea of let's give these white Americans something that they can appreciate you know in a way that's safe for them to understand um there's a great documentary called um the search for general sal where they kind of talk about how chinese food restaurants really grow in america in the 1950s and 60s and this is this this idea of something exotic being different and interesting you know Mm -hmm. during this time they had just definite uh you know very negative feelings about certain races but other races they found intriguing you know which is so backwards and baffling but this is this is the culture of the time you know um i find this all very infuriating but also like interesting at the same time you know and that that's definitely me coming from a place of privilege you know looking from the outside on this but anyways I digress uh (laughs) um (laughs) so yeah so he he gets his record label and uh He's also signing with another record company, uh, Fantasy Records in Berkeley. Uh, and who uh, Fantasy Records represented um, Lenny Bruce. Uh, oh, wow. And they, they signed Corla in 1958. Um, so then he has his second son, uh, Chris Corum, who's also known as John Pandit. Uh, in 1950 and uh 1951 uh uh uh, sorry downbeat um a hollywood uh magazine or carried a hollywood beat featured story by column columnist hal holly complete with photograph of carla pandit and organ a track uh it's titled photograph carla pandan and organ attract femmes to video that's what this says okay <laughs> um the article describes a visit to ktla studio from which corla was broadcasting for his show and refers to corla as being known as being known to local musicians as juan rolando so in this article i guess they they made that 
connection that these two people are the same persons, but really a lot about him being John Red and Juan Rolando doesn't really come out till after he passes away. So while he's alive, he really maintains this mystique. And I think a lot of it too is that he like never spoke on TV. People who knew him in in real life said that he had a very strange put on accent that would come and go. So oh. he was like creating this character in real life when he was like socializing, but it was like very put on. It just, it also reminds me of like Larry the Cable Guy um, <laughs> because that's, he's not like that at all. That is a hundred percent a character that he's put on uh and that's something that we've come to know and he's definitely capitalized on you know Mm -hmm. um but not who he is whatsoever you know Mm -hmm. yeah um uh so on september 13th 1951 vita records owner larry h mead promoted corla panda in a two-hour concert at the pasadena civic auditorium which drew 1,950 persons and grossed uh, $3,500. That's a lot in 1951. Um, And Corla was called back for three encores. Um, Later on, he had, uh, he got into real estate a little bit and he would also create some of the first music videos uh which were called telesubscriptions and they were 16 millimeter film clips featuring uh everyone who was anyone in music from Nat King Cole to Peggy Lee so he really created the first music videos to ever be aired on television uh and he would showcase these talented or these talents, and they would be at a fill-in featurettes on television stations. So he's creating like some of the first like MTV stuff. Oh wow! You know, uh, he does his first film in 1952, "Something to Live For." Um, in 1953, uh, he actually changes his name legally from John Roland Red to Corla Pandit. Um, he ends up performing in the Rose Bowl Parade, uh, which is huge in Los Angeles. And he won the TV Guide Award as the San Francisco Bay Area TV personality most worthy of network recognition. Uh, and he appeared in 52 more television show episodes and had a write-up in The Hollywood Reporter. Mm-hmm. So he's extremely successful for being you know from humble means for and especially in a segregated united states being a person of color you know even though he is portraying someone else you know but that's i feel that that's really like what a lot of people did in hollywood to pass like oh, they must have. oh god what is her name rita hayworth oh yeah right. you know 
So many, you know, and there's probably ones that we don't know about, you know, because they had passed so well, you know, made such a convincing persona. We'll probably never know. So, um, so, okay. In 1954, uh, so Corla had contracted uh, 52 half an hour shows with um, uh, in addition to the ones previously filmed with uh, Lou Snader. Um, so uh, original 10 Snader, sorry, let me just read this the way it is instead of just trying to sum it up. You're gonna have to edit that. Okay. I got it. <laughs> in 1954, the year 1954 saw another strange twist in Corliss career as Luce Nader next contracted Corla for 52 half-hour sh- uh, shows. Um, in addition to the previously filmed original tense, uh, Snader transcriptions featuring Corla, which were offered to the station around uh, the U.S. as individual performances or complete 15-minute television programs. Disagreements between Corla and Luce Snader developed and Corla having completed the minimum requirements, declared one and all that he would not be owned and did not sign with Snader. Uh, he was replaced with a young piano player named Liberace, uh, who had appeared on his own local program on Los Angeles TV station KLAC in Hollywood in 1952. So, he gets replaced on KTLA by Liberace in 1952. Um, and later on, he, he continues to work, but later on in the seventies, he starts to like kind of do less and less appearances. His popularity kind of starts to fade uh, until he does an appearance on um, a Richard Pryor sh- show called Which Way Is Up in 1977. Um, and he performed quite a few times on this show uh, up until 1983. And uh, in 1987, he does a comeback performance in Los Angeles uh, at the Los Angeles Park Plaza Hotel's Terrace Room. Um, and he also has kind of a comeback in drive-ins, roller rinks, theaters, floor shows. Um, he performs at tiki bars and clubs throughout the 80s. Um, so he has kind of like a little comeback of being kind of nostalgic in the 70s and 80s. Um, but probably the most recognized Um, performance of his would be in 1996 in a independent film produced sorry 1994 independent film produced by Tim Burton called Ed Wood about about the wonderful film director of uh, movies like Plan 9 from Outer Space and Glenn or Glenda has oh. a very small role in the dance sequence where 
uh, Johnny Depp playing Ed Wood is in an Angora sweater. And I don't know if you remember, but he like pulls his teeth out in that movie and he's doing like a dance and then Sarah Jessica Parker screams at him. I mean, kind of, yes. It's been a while, but yeah. yeah. Corla Pandit plays himself in, oh, in that wow. film. And that would be his last uh, performance, his last movie, his last performance. Oh, wow. Where, uh, before he passes away. Mm-hmm. So Beryl Pandit passed away in British Columbia, Canada, where she had been living later on in her life on December 31st of 2005 at the age of 85. Corla Pandit passes away at 77 on October 2nd, 1998 in Petaluma Valley Hospital in Petaluma, California of a heart attack. Uh, He, you know, is 100% the name that was given to him, which was the godfather of Exotica. (laughs) I think, you know, he was just a very interesting character that I wanted to talk about of bringing something new and different and dangerous and mysterious to the everyday TV watcher of, of the 1950s and still being entertaining all the way up until the 90s and you know I just found him so terribly interesting Mm -hmm. and yeah that's uh just a little bit about Corla Pandit and uh his persona of being the godfather of Exotica um So that is our episode on Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast. The things we will do for fame. Yeah. That will be the title of this episode. So uh, yeah, I hope you all enjoyed that. Like, subscribe, share, uh, follow us on the um, social medias. Uh, Definitely check out our Patreon where I'll be posting more uh, content. There's some exclusive content on Patreon, um, videos, pictures, uh, episodes just for that. You can find us at patreon.com slash HH the podcast. And uh, yeah, 